Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that we do in our office, sometimes the work that we do with our clients, and always exploring the ways that we can do better for our profession and helping with clients. And this week is Eating Disorder Awareness Week, and it's been a while since we have talked about eating disorders here on the podcast and wanting to explore a little bit about some of the ways that we can potentially know where our limits are in working with these populations. We do have a couple of earlier episodes that we'll link to in our show notes, but today we are joined by Rachel Coleman, LMFT, CEDS. Uh, I went to grad school with Rachel, so somebody that I have known for quite a while, but bring it on the experts to talk about things that we don't have expertise on ourselves. So thank you very much for joining us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. This is a fun 15, 20 year reunion here. I don't know how long it's been. <laughs> it's not that long yet, is it? <laughs> I think it's getting up there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So excited to have <laughs> you here and for this conversation. The first question that we ask everyone is who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Sure. Well, like Kurt said, my name is Rachel Coleman. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and that CEDS is a certified eating disorder specialist. I have a private practice down here in Orange County, California. I treat eating disorders and all the underlying issues that present along with eating disorders. Um, what am I putting out there in the world? I mean, I suppose I dabble in social media, but really my passion <laughs> is just in one-on-one -on -one individual therapy. I really believe in that sacred therapy space where clients can identify and break their personal and family legacies around bodies and food and diets. I really believe that helping that, what we would call in our line of work, the identified patient heal really has a ripple effect. It helps the older generations do their own deconstruction and healing. And then it also, I'm hoping changes the future of the next generation. So I really do believe in that, that beautiful therapy relationship and the ripple effect that occurs when a client is able to do that awesome work. And one of the first questions that we usually ask is for a learning place. This is not to necessarily shame anybody, but the experience that you have, and I've, I mean, even in grad school, I think you were working in eating disorders, if I remember our practicum classes correctly, mm -hmm. that 
you've been around for a while. What do you see that therapists get wrong in working with eating disorders? I mean, I think that therapists and everyone live in a very diety culture. We live in a society obsessed with diets and bodies. And so I think it's very easy for subconscious beliefs about food and bodies to infiltrate sessions because it's subconsciously in us. And so it can come out in our language. Um, diet culture is a term that's thrown around a lot. So I can give your listeners a little bit of a definition. My definition of it is it's a mindset and it's also a system of theories that we live in that really credits a person's shape and size as the primary indicators of health and also of moral superiority. So basically within diet culture, thinness is valued above other body types, Foods are usually described with moral terms like good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. And unfortunately, bodies that don't meet this projected ideal of beauty are often oppressed. So when we are just growing up and still living in a culture that holds this belief system, it can easily be something that we don't even realize that we're drinking the Kool-Aid of, and it can come out in our conversations or in our perspectives. So often I hear, unfortunately, clients share with me things that therapists have said that were really kind of harmful or hurtful, even if it feels like it's nothing big. So for example, I've heard people share that therapists have discussed working out or going to the gym in sessions, or like I said, therapists are on social media these days. So sometimes they will post their workouts or their runs. Even if a client is talking about exercise or going to the gym, even a little like typical quip in our society of like, oh, I'm so terrible about going to the gym brings in that moral superiority in a very subconscious way. Um, Or even kind of walking across the room to like open the door, get a book being like, well, at least I got my steps in. And I think anything that kind of, once again, perpetuates this belief system of working out is good or not working out is bad or anything like that automatically becomes a place where maybe a client doesn't feel safe because that's the exact work that they're trying to do. This also comes out with food. You know, if therapists are talking about their chronic dieting or saying phrases like, oh, I I struggle with my weight, I get it, Um, or feeling like foods if they don't believe that foods are neutral and they're coming out in sessions with conversations about, oh, trying to eat healthier or foods are good or bad, basically sharing personal experiences about fad diets (laughs) or even lifestyle changes. I'm using air quotes, anything that kind of just continues to perpetuate these beliefs about food and bodies can really create a space where a client doesn't necessarily feel safe to interrupt any patterns or behaviors that they have been suffering from. So overall therapists not having done the work themselves to deconstruct their beliefs can come out in those conversations. What you're saying is makes a lot of sense. And I'm finding the bias that I have from society coming up. And so I want to, if, if, if it's okay with you, I want to play with this a little bit because there's a question that I've had for a while, and it's hard to know how to to manage it. I, I was in grad school longer ago than the two of you were. And a lot of the, especially around depression, a lot of the treatments were activity. 
Mm -hmm. um, making sure that you're, you know, drinking enough water or Mm -hmm. eating appropriately, you know, kind of having enough food, but also having healthy foods. I mean, and I have my air quotes going too. I think it's, it's hard for me to know what is promoting health being active is considered healthy. Mm -hmm. That was my understanding. Um, I think eating foods that are nutritious and nourishing, I think is considered healthy. And so I can, I'm understanding the element of let's not make this about moral judgments. If we do things that are, are, uh, in alignment with what society calls healthy or good. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to identify how we support folks without that playing in and, and what, what is okay to talk about? Like that's, that's hard for me to find that line. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I do DBT and in DBT, there's a lot of similar types of modalities that we recommend. So I understand that absolutely there is a fine line. And some of those things are very, very helpful for combating depression. So <laughs> yeah, yes, I think the, the, the fine line that I always am navigating in conversations with clients when we're trying to figure out self-care, because that's kind of what you're talking about. Sure is the motivation behind it. So I think often if the motivation behind it is, well, I'm going to go do those things because I am trying to change my body or because I'm trying to pursue the weight loss, um, or because I, you know, once again, air quotes, feel fat, then what you're looking at is how do you deconstruct the motivating factor behind the behavior rather than, okay, there's nothing wrong with going for a walk or a jog or going to the gym, especially if the motivating factor is it's that endorphin release that helps ease the anxiety. And there's nothing necessarily about the body that's coming into play. Or once again, if that is the only coping skill in the box for anxiety management, well, how do we broaden the skills Mm -hmm. within the box so that, okay, maybe here and there, there's an exercise element to anxiety management, but then there's also 10 other things so that it can be this just more well-rounded whole person thing. And I think this is where if a therapist has done their own work and then able to have some of these really deeper conversations with clients, they're able to realize whether or not what they're upholding in their modalities or in the recommendations is based in any internalized fat phobia, in any weight stigma, and kind of is what what's the ethical fine line that we're helping people walk? Does that answer the question a little bit? It does. I have some more questions, but let's dig deeper in. I'm, I, I see Kurt ready to, to jump in here. <laughs> You've mentioned a, a couple of times about therapists doing their own work in, in this regard. Mm-hmm. And for many of us, the education that we received on eating disorders in graduate school was minimal, if anything. What's some suggestions as far as doing your own work on this that our audience might be able to walk away with? Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, obviously doing your own personal work on what are your beliefs about food, bodies, and weight, and doing that either in your own personal reading or journaling or therapy. Um, As far as you're right, there is very little education. I think we got a one hour lecture that's all I remember personally. So it's, it's definitely insufficient. Um, I think that absolutely doing more webinars, podcasts, taking any courses you can, anything about the complexities of eating disorders, and also anything that focuses on the social justice movements surrounding weight stigma 
that teaches cultural awareness and sensitivity towards viewing bodies and sizes, encourages this concept of body trust and body neutrality. Those are kind of modalities that we try to work from. How do you trust your body and how do you honor your body? Anything that's aligned with health at every size, which I know you guys have spoken on in the past. Most eating disorder treatment centers regularly offer free webinars virtually. There's local IADEP chapters. You can get certifications in intuitive eating. So you can do a lot of extra work on your own. I also recommend, obviously, if you're interested in this field to start working at an eating disorder treatment center, work at the highest level of care that you can try to get in with, because when you are in the trenches in these inpatient residential settings, you're going to get just an immersion of so much education. And that's kind of where I started my work. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. It seems like there's a lot more knowledge that a therapist would need to be, to really be able to effectively treat an eating disorder. And I also know that there are a lot of folks that have disordered eating, are fully immersed in diet culture, and have some of the kind of subclinical or mildly clinical levels of this that I think all therapists need to know. And it, it to me, I've had some clients who came in for something completely else and then were on weird diets. <laughs> Totally. And, and, and also hated their bodies and had really negative self-talk, really harsh, critical, negative self-talk. And so I've sought consultation and done other things to try to support that uh, and referred where appropriate. But I think the, the pieces that were critical for me to know at first were kind of this assessment of figuring out, is this someone that's maybe drinking too much of the diet culture Kool-Aid, or is this someone that has an eating disorder and needs that more specific eating disorder treatment. Do you have some suggestions for clinicians who are maybe needing to assess their caseload? Because, you know, when we're recording this, it's the new year, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people on diets and fasts and this and that. And and so I think there's, there's a need to really understand Mm -hmm. and assess appropriately as a start. I think you bring up a great point. It sounds like you're doing awesome work yourself of just continuing to hold that space because let's, let's face it. All of our clients have a body and all (laughs) of our clients are therefore going to have to figure out a relationship with their body, regardless of eating disorder Mm -hmm. diagnosis or not. So I agree. And that's why I also think that grad schools should absolutely be talking about this way more because 
every, this is something that's going to come up with every single client, regardless of their presenting problem. So yes, because all of our clients live in this world and we live in this world, they're constantly selling them messages to change their body. The impact of that messaging will vary. And so you're right. You're going to have to kind of evaluate where the client is on the impact of this messaging and then the, how much they're applying this diet culture messaging. Whenever we can just open up this therapeutic space to be a comfortable place for a client to process their connection with their body, their relationship with the scale, the trust they have with their hunger and fullness cues, with their body size and shape, whatever past or present body insecurities that they have and how it's impacting their ability to function now, ways that they've used food to cope with those feelings, um, any internalized beliefs they have about their body from past bullying, from childhood, from parents, you know, what, what was it like at the family dinner table for them growing up? Was there a family dinner table? And just all of the different layers of what, how a client feels about food and their body. Every client has to eat five, six times a day, you know, they have to figure out how to dress their body, how to take care of it, how to get good sleep. So I think having a safe space with that neutral, that neutral energy is a really great space. So anyway, that kind of is touching on that piece. As far as the assessments concerned, I think you're really looking at the impact of any behaviors or patterns on daily functioning. Anytime a client is choosing to focus on weight or body and sacrificing other things that are aligned with their value system, then it starts becoming something where, okay, obviously this is becoming your priority. And I don't think your priorities are in alignment right now with everything else that is really important to you and makes up your identity. And so we have to kind of make sure that then at that point, whatever these behaviors and patterns are become some of our primary goals and focuses to, to treat. And if, again, if that feels like it's something that it starts feeling like it's out of your scope because the client feels out of control. They're not able to pull back anything. They're not able to easily make those tweaks and go, oh yeah, you're right. Wow. So curious. I'm going to try something different. When it feels like it is fear-based that they're doing these behaviors and patterns, they can't make those changes easily. It's impacting their ability to be in social relationships, go to work, choose other things that are important to them. And then you're probably looking at something that's a little bit more deeply embedded. In my experience, and I've gone to a lot of these workshops at various conferences and treatment centers over the years and have really noticed just kind of my sensitivity as a clinician to a lot of the things that you're talking about. But it seems like if there's three categories of people, the people who have the bare minimum of eating disorder education, and then the, the gold standard of eating disorder treatment, the CEDS, there's kind of this dangerous place in the middle of thinking that you're further ahead in the work that I don't know if I'm in that dangerous spot or not, but at least being aware of where that edge <laughs> is. Yeah. I mean, you and me both, buddy. <laughs> but it, it seems like this is a time that that's really ripe to be making some of those mistakes that you're talking about. And, and a big part of what mm -hmm. we talk about on the podcast here is about being a little bit more transparent with your life. And you brought up social media earlier and some of the ways that clients might have access to therapist life in some of these ways before. Do you think that this contributes to maybe some of that fear of treating eating disorders in a lot of the population is that having to look at ourselves in the way that we're putting ourselves out there is just easier to pretend that it doesn't exist. Maybe. Yeah, you're right. There, 
there is a dangerous space. And yet I'm absolutely not someone who's like, don't even go there and leave it to the experts. Like, again, because all clients have a body, everyone is going to have to have some element of conversation about this. I think there are a couple of reasons why many therapists feel apprehensive about treating this and they're not sure what to do. And part of it, yeah, is I think that a lot of people secretly know that maybe they don't have peace with their own bodies or they do have some of that secret fat phobia or they have their own struggle with repeat behaviors and they're, they're concerned about their ability to stay neutral, not have any transference or countertransference that are impacting their therapeutic relationship. So you're right. I think it's one of those things where it's like, in order to, to feel like you're navigating this, you do have to have a sense of peace and neutrality in your own personal life. That is really, really important. I also hear a lot of therapists say like, I can never do that. Like, I just like food too much, or I just, I just don't get it. And it's like, okay, again, though, I think whatever, whatever that fear is underneath that is probably something that needs to be healed yourself because you are a human who also grew up in this space. I think the legal ethical pieces are the most probably concerning with treating eating disorders. I think that is where it's dangerous probably to use your word. And then also where people completely shy away because there is that medical liability that can present along with an eating disorder. And there's, it's so embedded in us to be like, check for safety, check for safety. And like the first course we have in grad school is that law and ethics course, which like I think most people are like, never mind. We're not going to do this entire grad school program. This is frightening. <laughs> <laughs> I almost like quit right then and there. You know, I think it becomes something where it's very, it's very scary to think, okay, I am now treating someone who there potentially is a safety concern and medical liability on the line here. So while yes, that space right there is, I think where client, I mean, I'm sorry. I think that space right there is where therapists tend to completely shy away. And trust me, I consult nonstop with licensing boards and treatment teams. And there's a lot more wiggle room than you think. We, I also am almost always with a treatment team. There's almost always a dietitian on board and a medical doctor on board. And then most often than not, we are also referring to those higher level of cares, the, the inpatient and anything to get them the stabilization needed so that we can continue treating outpatient. And then I also think that people underthink them. And that is where the dangerous space comes in. Again, people kind of just think, well, you know, that behavior is normalized in our society. So I'm not concerned about it. And they forget to ask questions about, um, you know, heart rates or sleep or how much water clients are or are not drinking. Or, you know, clients are saying they are eating out, but therapists aren't asking, well, how much are you eating? And what else are you taking? And they're not asking the little detailed questions that if you start kind of, having an awareness of how eating disorders present, then you're able to realize, oh, this might actually be more severe than my brain kind of caught on initially. I know for myself, when I've had clients that have started to have behaviors that were of concern and I pulled out into a team, I was I was honestly surprised by some of the information that hadn't been shared. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a dietitian, so I'm not necessarily asking really, really specific questions. And and my, this is leading to my question, but like some of the medical questions, I don't think to ask, I'm not a medical doctor, but it sounds like you're saying maybe we should. And so I guess the question is how do we ask some of these questions and stay in scope Mm -hmm. of practice? I think asking questions is different than like treating the answer. 
Okay. You know, okay. so that makes I sense. think I often ask how does your, how does your heart feel when you sit or stand up? Oh, it, it's funky. Okay. Let's go. Let's make sure you definitely go to your doctor. I want you to go to the doctor and have that conversation. And then I'm going to have you sign the release. And I'm going to consult with the doctor. Cause I, I think we need to make sure that that's okay. Or, you know, if it's a female, I'll ask when's the last time you've gotten your menstrual cycle. Okay. It's been three, four months. All right. You know what? I, I want you to go to your doctor, an OBGYN get that checked out because that's, it can be a sign of malnutrition. And so I want you to make sure that that is ruled out or ruled in. So we know how to proceed. Um, you know, how many laxes and diuretics are you taking? Again, this is just intake information for me. I'm not, I'm not yeah. treating it, but I'm knowing what I'm what's sitting on my couch <laughs> and I'm knowing what yeah. I need to recommend to do next. And maybe that's, that's the part that's challenging knowing what to do next. Yeah. I mean, it's easy just to say like anything that's wonky, go see your doctor. And, and so that, that feels like that feels very doable. And then get that release, <laughs> get that release. Because again, we're, I, I can't read labs, right? So if a client gets, gets the labs and is like, I got my lab work, here it is. I'm like, that that's way out of my scope. So make sure that release of information <laughs> is so because I need to ask the doctor what these numbers mean. And I need to know what's yeah. going on with the doctor. So a huge piece of outpatient care with eating disorders is a lot of times on the phone consulting with the other members of the team. Mm-hmm. I want to change the conversation a little bit here to the client end of things and why you see that people with eating disorders don't necessarily seek out treatment. I mean, I think there's a huge shame cycle that is, you know, in rotation here, a sense of going, I, I am scared to talk about how out of control I feel about certain behaviors. And then I also feel a little protective of those behaviors because they probably came into fruition to protect me from something, mm-hmm. protect me from weight stigma, from trauma. They eased my anxiety. And so it feels like you're asking someone to give up their greatest resource and also their greatest source of misery. And there's, I think a lot of shame that clients identify that they are in this cycle and they are kind of stuck in this space. And it's, 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 it makes them hesitant, I think, to, to seek out that treatment because they're going to have to lay it all on the table and kind of figure out what they need to tweak. How do we as a profession kind of contribute to some of those fears? That's a great question. I'm sure there's a sense of trying clients feel like we're, we're so hyper-focused on the behavior that we're maybe pushing them to give something up that they're not ready to give up. And so it feels like they ha- they're held accountable, which again, is that fine line of like, of course, we want them to feel like there's some sort of safety and accountability in sessions, but we also don't want to give them ultimatums or feel more ashamed if they did struggle with behavior in between sessions so that then they're going to be avoidant of coming and processing what's going on. So I think holding that safe space to say, this is really hard. This is a really, really challenging, complicated cycle to break. And I'm going to keep my fears of liabilities and legal and ethical stuff at the door so I can hold a safe, neutral space in the room for you to kind of process through where you're at and how we can continue to support you. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. 
Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. To me, it seems like the risk elements are the things that therapists probably could get tripped up on pretty quickly, you know, especially if they've got a longstanding client who's showing up with some of these behaviors, they're getting out of control. And I know probably a number of therapists that are listening, you know, that was a pandemic thing. Clients that had been fine, had an eating disorder long, long ago, all of a sudden it popped back up during the pandemic. And now they've got this longstanding relationship and referring out feels a little bit daunting Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not advised. Right. And so I think it's, for me, I think the thing that would be helpful is, is talking through some of that risk. Like when is it okay to kind of allow the client to be in their process? And when is it like, no, 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 this is a danger. Like I need to take some big steps. I mean, I'm not a legal ethical expert here. <laughs> uh, call your licensing board. <laughs> I, but but yeah. when would you call your licensing board? I guess is Good what question. I'm asking. Yeah, I think when it comes down to a sense of like, is this client medically able to take care of themselves and safe in between sessions? That is 100% a call to a licensing board. I've been calling, you're right, the licensing board more and more and more since the pandemic started too. <laughs> I feel like more than ever because cases are more acute than ever. And one of the biggest challenges to treating this right now is that the inpatient residential high levels cares have two, three, maybe more month wait lists. So you yeah. have someone who needs to be in a hospital and they can't get in for weeks. Well, you're not going to just terminate care, obviously, but also now you're treating a client who's potentially not appropriate for outpatient. We've been, I've been having a lot of very candid conversations with clients, treatment plan contracts, which is going based on how you're presenting. This is the course and plan of treatment that is recommended. These are the steps I want you to take. This is the timeline we're both agreeing on. And if the treatment plan isn't able to proceed as we're discussing, then it's not going to be a good fit for us to continue to work together. So I have lots of very candid conversations. I have contracts for safety. Um, I have lots of case consultations. I have mandatory requests for clients to be seeing a, a dietitian how many times a week or a doctor how many times so that there is a sense that there are multiple eyes on the person. So we do a lot of conversations about that um, just to kind of try to make sure that clients are getting the containment and the support and they, they need while also staying safe and also working with the system that we're kind of living in right now in the pandemic, which is not unfortunately a rapid and perfect one. Well, on the other end of things, if someone's fasting or if someone is restricting or uh, purging or those kinds of things, I mean, those things are not going to change overnight. And I think people get fearful because if someone throws up twice a day, is that a medical risk? If they throw up once a week, is that a medical risk? If they're fasting every other day, or if they're restricting down to a certain amount, or it seems hard to know, like, at what point do I need to to ring these bells? At what point do I need to either try to seek inpatient or whatever? It, It feels like there's this nebulous area where some of it is like, Intermittent fasting is a diet that's going on right now, right? You know, restriction and and deep restriction has, has, you know, I saw in a, this was many, many years ago, but restricting calories down below a certain point 
for long periods of time was shown to have health benefits or something like it was like it was it's it's stuff that doesn't make sense there's also the whole medical model that's giving us information that doesn't align with this anti-diet culture and so i think for me it's it feels hard to sort out when is this i'm holding space and we're talking about it and when is it hey i need to get this person to a doctor or or say like no you have to change this or else i'm terminating mm-hmm. you this is where the board would say, you've got a lot more wiggle room than you think. I okay. think this is where the board would say like, well, yeah, I mean, you're not necessarily doing anything illegal by seeing someone who's purging X amount of times, but ethically, sure. how can we do no harm? How can we support the client to getting better? And are they able to change and contain and shift this harmful behavior in our current therapeutic plan? I think the examples you just listed absolutely warrant a higher level of care. That is something I would probably easily identify based on how you're presenting, based on your frequency of symptoms. I, you definitely need a higher level of care. Now let's talk about what the plan could be to get you there. And if it takes a few weeks, I'm here. And if it takes a little while to convince you, then let's talk about stages of change. Let's talk about pre-contemplation. Let's talk about all of the <laughs> other things that we can talk about and spend time exploring while still holding a boundary of, listen, I think that you need more support than I can offer you in order to get this, these things changed. And these things are scary and medically it's not okay for your body. And so I can't just sit here and be like, we're going to process how you feel about this for weeks and weeks on end. We have to kind Mm -hmm. of hold that fine line. You know, it's funny you say that and about like, when should you refer to the doctor? I mean, for me, that's just kind of my standard. Like if you're going to be seeing me outpatient and you have a diagnosable eating disorder, you will be in a team. I am not going to be the, your only provider. Makes sense. One of the big trends in our fields is the role of lived experience that a lot of clients are seeking out and kind of looking at the, the ways that some of the therapist behaviors that you're talking about earlier can trigger clients. Do you have any recommendations for people with lived experience as far as how to walk this line and being able to talk about their own perspectives of having received ED treatments in working with clients who are presenting with ED related behaviors? So like whether a client should share their in recovery, whether, whether a therapist, yeah, should be talking about their own experiences is recovery. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that a lot of clients do feel better if a therapist is able to identify and reveal that they are recovered themselves and they've been there. I don't know if details are needed. I think it can be one of those things where it's, you're really, what you're really trying to validate is the client's pain. You know, I, I can see your pain. I have some experience with my own pain. I will never feel yours though. Yours is unique. Yours is your own, but I know that this is a long process and I know that things are hard and I have empathy and I validate your experience. I don't know if therapists need to go into details about their own stuff because the nature of an eating disorder is to be um, highly competitive and to be comparing a lot and comparing Mm when you're in an eating disorder only makes you feel worse. It never makes you feel better. I think you definitely want to make sure you're not triggering clients eating disorder brains to start doing extra, you know, comparison and calculation, but maybe a general sense of, I I validate and see your pain. And I also know that recovery is possible because a lot of times when a client's struggling, they don't think that there's hope. 
it doesn't feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so if there's things that a therapist can say that will make clients feel hopeful and know that recovery is possible, then I think those things are really therapeutically beneficial, but probably best to keep personal disclosures out of the therapy room. One last question is looking at the way that ED is taught, what would you add to curriculums to help people better be able to be prepared in working with this kind of a client population? That's a great question. I think I think what's missing is the complexities of how eating disorders present. I think we get the like little box DSM criteria, but we don't really get the fact that every single eating disorder is as unique as the person. So no eating disorder is the same sitting in a room and being able to ask a lot of these questions that we're kind of talking about. I think it'd be really beneficial for therapists to be educated on the various non-stereotypical ways that eating disorders present and all the great questions that people can ask. I do talk at grad schools a lot. And when I do, I bring my intake forms and I pass out my intake forms for students to look at, because one of the things I want to teach them is what questions to ask and what things to look for. And just kind of, it basically gives them a better understanding of what an e-source even going to look like on your couch the various ones, the examples, um, and just all the very detailed variety of how these these diagnoses can present so that they're able to to recognize it. Because otherwise you just get the DSM criteria and the Hollywood movies, which are portraying anorexia in one way. And it's just, it's not, it's not sufficient enough. Where can people find out more about you and your practice? Sure. So my website is www.rachelcolemancebs.com. And that's probably the best bet. Like I said, I suppose I dabble in social media. Um, so you can find me (laughs) kind of take some months off. And sometimes I'm like, Oh, I have some thoughts, but my Instagram is at Rachel Coleman MFT. And I have a Facebook page with my name as well. And we will include links to that in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com and you can follow us on our social media. Come and join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, and share with us your experiences of eating disorder education or lack thereof and things that you would do to help better our fields when it comes to serving all clients. And until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy and Rachel Coleman. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 